All right. We are recording. Welcome to the Speak Up Podcast with Laura Camacho, where we talk about the conversations that we need to have to create the life and the career that we want. And today I have a guest from California, or he's in California. He's not originally from there. Uh, Mr. Luis Gonzalez is a global communications consultant. He's worked in technology a lot. He's worked in human resources. He's literally lived in a bunch of different countries. I really like his global approach. Well, global, I would say I would prefer the word international because every country, you know, has like a little, and every region and every little town has, you know, little nuances there. So there's really no global one size fits all <laughs> communication style. So Louise, welcome. And uh, tell us a little bit like, you know, becoming a communication consultant is not a normal thing to do. So tell me, how did you decide on that path? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've always been curious as to how people talk, since I was a little kid, how people talk and how people communicate from different cultures. So I'll back up and say, um, I actually am from California. I'm a native oh, Los really? Angeles, Californian. Yes, a second generation Mexican-American. Oh, uh, but born and raised in California. Now it gets more interesting. I grew up in a town called Compton, California. Oh, yeah. um, it has yeah. a reputation. Uh, but for those of us who know Compton, it was a very, uh, when I grew up in the seventies, the sixties and seventies was very multicultural, very diverse. And so as a kid, I was always observing the way that different groups, ethnic groups in this case would communicate and how there would be miscommunication Sometimes neither of, of the parties would be at fault or it was not purposely done, of course. And I would see ways to bridge those communication gaps as a little kid. Uh, long story short, I had 20 years with the, or so about 18 years with the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company where I was exposed to many people from all over the world. That clued me in even more as to, and even some mistakes I made in terms of communicating and how I would greet people based on my assumptions thinking that a particular group of people at the hotel were, uh, you know, from one ethnic group and I was slightly wrong, but wrong enough to offend them and embarrass myself. That led me to like decide, okay, I want to study this. So after 18 years of a wonderful and illustrious hotel, a hospitality career with Marriott and the Ritz Carlton, I decided at the late age of 38 to go back to school and get my master's degree, which I did in international relations with the focus on culture and communication studies. Great. That led me to uh, working for my mentor for uh, doing an internship with his cross-cultural communication consulting company, eventually led me to Microsoft in India, where I was a culture and communication specialist working with teams of software engineers who were the customer service representatives for high-end Microsoft customers in the US. So there had to be top-notch seamless communication and you can imagine they're indians talking to u.s americans and some of those indians were native english speakers they were what we call anglo indians in other words they speak english at home that's their main language and still same language there were culturally based if you will communication gaps and so that is just a real passion for me and interest that i have to get into the nuts and bolts of how people groups teams culturally or locally are communicating and what are those gaps in those in that communication 
that if you're speaking from an organizational perspective, cost the organization. And from a personal perspective, cost us in terms of relationships and just good relations with other people that don't necessarily have to happen that way. Very cool. That's very cool. That great. got me to where I am now. <laughs> yeah. So you had that early fascination. It's so true about making the assumptions. And I, I, I just brought to mind a, a, a short story when I was new to the training world coming from academia. Uh -huh. And uh, I was uh, one training. This was in the in healthcare pharmaceutical industry, and I was just watching this guy. And he asked, as an icebreaker, he asked everybody's uh, favorite uh, college football team. And right. I mean, the everybody was just eating that out. You know, Clemson, Alabama, South. I mean, they just loved it. So I thought, oh, that's the really good question. So I have a training. But it's a different setting. It's pharmaceutical reps from different parts of the country. Right. And, and I, I'm like, I'm going to try my question. And they were like, we don't really follow college football. I was just going to say that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it was just, and I, and I don't even know anything about football of any sort. So I was really just totally bombing those yeah, yeah. Those making those assumptions and yet as you know you know a conversation can be so powerful can you tell us you know like a a story of how you've seen conversation you know change other people or change yourself i'd love to hear those kind of stories yeah you know we're talking about assumptions and we and i say we meaning us human beings last i checked i was one so i include <laughs> myself in that we human beings tend to enter conversations with our assumptions, preconceived ideas, or even biases of another person. And they're formed by previous experiences, our values, or what have you. But we often come into a conversation with a certain uh, lens or a filter through which we view the situation in, in, or the person. And in the conversation, what I have found, which is really cool, the power of conversations to change others, or I'll speak for myself to change me, is when I go into the conversation with this assumption, you know, with this context about that person, only to find out in the conversation that I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll give you an example. It's a simple example, and it happened to me recently. When I was living in San Diego, I was going to a particular neighborhood market, if you will, and there was the same cashier person working at the cash register and every day on a regular basis i would go in there and i would as i normally do make try to make some small talk or engage somehow i'm going to be a regular customer and i just kept getting the cold shoulder i kept getting short answers and i just wasn't getting that to use a california term the vibe that you know hey this was a you know a good little connection here and i developed an assumption i developed a bias about that person She's this, she's that, she's this, she's that. She's mean, she doesn't have good customer service skills. They should pay me to come in and train her how to have good <laughs> customer skills. Uh, you know, I could just go visit another store and they wouldn't even know they lost a customer and they're gonna miss out on thousands of dollars a year simply because this lady <laughs> doesn't have the time of day to actually look at me and smile. And so that was my context. Later, I'm having a conversation with someone in the neighborhood Somehow or other, this market comes up in the conversation and I mention, yeah, but the girl that works on the day is not very friendly. Actually, she's kind of, and I began okay. to probably say bad things about her. Not bad things, but I had a critique. I had a uh, negative context about her. And the person I was talking with after he let me finish and didn't interrupt, he said, you know what? 
go easy on her. She's going through a lot right now. Her father just died of COVID. She, her husband left and then he began with what oh she was going through because, because he knows her better. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh my gosh, it just goes to show you my assumptions and I'm developing a context around this person and through the conversation, a different conversation with someone else, find out more of the story. There's pieces of the puzzle that I wasn't aware of that start to fill in that tell me that explains it. Now I understand why she's not been in the best of moods. God love her, man. I feel bad. So I started going back into the store and not pushing it, just being nice and friendly and smiling. Sooner or later, she warmed up on her own. And then we started to develop that little customer cashier kind of a relationship. But the point that I wanted to make and why I'm telling you this story is that we often go into conversations with assumptions or biases or preconceived notions. And that's not wrong because that's just natural what we do. Where we tend to trip up is we don't, re- we don't recognize that. We have these biases and we have these assumptions. So what that has taught me is to go into conversations with people whether I know them well or not, I try to go in with curiosity first because I'm always aware that, hey, there might be more to the story here that I don't know. There might be more pieces of the puzzle here that I'm unaware of. So I go in with curiosity knowing that, knowing that I have biases perhaps, or that I have assumptions and that's okay, but they may be dispelled in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of effective, fierce conversations as I call them. I love that. Yeah, curiosity is a is a wonderful quality, uh, and and yet, and you know, it works. So many times, people are concerned with showing that they know, that showing that they're experts, showing that they're the leaders, that they're competent. So, how would what would you say to somebody who is looking for a promotion, wants to get into leadership or or senior leadership? And they're, you know, they want to be seen as competent and, and leadership material, but yet that, that kind of contradicts what you think of as being curious and open-minded. I look at it differently. I look at it as good leaders, and I've worked for many good leaders. Mm-hmm. I have mentors who are excellent leaders from my perspective. That's actually a strength to go in curiosity. Look, not one person in an entire team or in an organization can know everything about everything in that organization or team. It's just impossible. So how do we find out what we don't know? We have to get curious. We have to ask. To me, that makes a leader stronger. Now, I'm not talking about questions that I should already know the answers to. Mm-hmm. That's different. Yes, of course, I need to be competent. I'm, I, I was hired for this role and I have the skills and the competencies and everything else, talents, etc., to do this job well. But when it gets to the nuts and bolts of the workplace and what's going on in my department and the people who perhaps report to me, I remain curious before I go in with what I need to say. Tell me more about that. Help me understand what's going on here. Here's what I'm seeing. Is there more to the story that I'm missing here? Help me understand why this is happening, why this is not happening. That's one thing. And then, of course, the pieces of the puzzle fill in. Now I'm better prepared or I'm in a better position to either state my case or not because this new information that came in, I may not need to state my case. I've been proved wrong or I've, get, I've gotten more information that, you know, that indicates I don't need to speak whatever it was I was about to go in and say. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect I want to say is why it's a strength for leaders to get curious is, look, if I'm a leader, I'm hired 
and my promotions and my salary and staying with the company is all based on, am I making the best possible decisions for the organization at the end of the day? That's what it boils down to. Not if I was right. Oh, good. So yeah. I'm, so, yeah. So if, if I'm about to make all kinds of decisions about processes and procedures and how we do things and changing things up like leaders do, I'm going to ask questions before I make those changes. So what I mean by that is I may develop my plan. I may develop my procedure, the project, whatever it is, but I will ask my key stakeholders. Could be two people, could be six people, whoever, depending on the situation, I will ask those key stakeholders. First, I'll tell them, here's the situation. Here's what I need to do about it. Here's what I plan to do about it. Now, tell me, <laughs> where are the weak spots in that plan? Number one. Number two, how is that going to affect you and your team? How is that going to affect clients and customers? Because I'm not client-facing, perhaps. So I'll run it by them, but I'm already prepared. Here's the situation. Here's what it calls for here's what I need to do. And here's what I think I'm going to do. What would you do if you were in my shoes? I will get different opinions. They may clash, but that's how I make the best possible decision. And I love it when I do that. And I'm sure that this is the plan I'm going to roll out and I run it by my stakeholders. And someone says, Whoa, hold on a second. If you do that, X, Y, Z will happen. The customers won't be happy with that. Oh my gosh. Thank you for letting me know. Mm -hmm. right. and I'll, tweak my, yeah. I'll tweak my plan. So back to our original uh, question, I think, and I forgot what the question was, but I'm not seeing getting curious, being curious, or as we call it at Fierce, interrogating reality. I see it as a strength, not a weakness for leaders. I totally agree. It's just I see that uh, for young leaders who are, have been promoted because they're high performers, because they solve the problems and they get the job done, it's really hard sometimes for some of them to let go and have that space for, you know, inviting that, Hey, this is what I think. What do you think? Yeah. You know, instead, and they are trying to pivot a little bit from proving that you do, that you can get it done to inviting uh, that interaction and getting more information sure. that way. I, I get where they're coming from as well, but what I've also seen when that happens, when you do go in and not get curious and try to prove that, hey, I'm competent and I can do this, and you start managing from a top-down perspective, what mm -hmm. I call the old way of management, you may get compliance from your, from your team. They may jump you know, and ask you how high when you say jump and all that, but later you may find out you were wrong. You may find out you actually didn't have the best plan. There were other good ideas out there that would have maybe help your, uh, you know, whatever result it is that you wanted to see, but you find out that after the fact of just going in with your agenda and not going in with your agenda, but with curiosity as well, if that makes sense. Right. Well, but there's also, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I'm thinking about them presenting to senior leadership, to the executive ah. board. That's where, that's where I get called in is when they have to present an idea or something to the top, top, top people. And that's the, where the conflict is, not in their own teams. So, okay. Okay. so well, what, so what do you say to that? In that regard, as I've been in that situation so many times, <laughs> in fact, I think last week been in that situation, uh, you heard me mention earlier, perhaps before we were recording bullet points, I like executive summaries and that's how I present to high level C level executives. Here's the problem. Here's, here's, what we, here's why we need to fix it. Here's what will happen if we don't fix it. 
here are three options. One of them is do nothing. <laughs> and here are the results. If we do those three, including nothing, here's what I propose we do. There may be more uh, that I'm not aware of, and that's why you are all here, C-level executives, to fill in any blanks that I may not be aware of. I'm not privy to the conversations you are involved in on a day-to-day -day basis, but with what I do know and with the facts that I do have, this is what I'm presenting to you and how I think we should move forward. I love that because it, it, uh, it shows that you've done your homework. You know what you're talking yes. about. But, but that, of course, of course, you don't have the same perspective as the people that are flying a level or so above you. That's very, I think it's very interesting and very helpful. Yeah, I know and, that. Yeah, they do know that. I mean, it's just, yeah, the, that fear and the nervousness. Um, so yes. that curiosity, it relates to asking good questions, don't you think? Beg your pardon? That being curious relates to asking good questions. Asking good questions, yes. And then that raises the question, is there a bad question? I don't know. Sometimes it feels like when you've just said something and-, and That's people, a bad question, yes. As a trainer and facilitator- <laughs> Yes. And someone asked me something that I just elaborated that's, on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> that would be the exception where I say, yeah, bad question or you weren't listening. <laughs> or, or the question I used to not like when I was in the, in the classroom was, is that on the test? <laughs> And that would just send me, ah, but anyway. Um, what about listening? What about you're a leader, you have a team, and there's, you know, someone who's just a pain to listen to because they go on and on or they rehash several points. And you mentioned assumptions. You know, we assume we know what they're going to say. So what are your best uh, helps for listening better? Well, okay, I love that question. And we've already talked about going in with curiosity. So that's the first thing, let's just mm -hmm. say that. I go in with curiosity mode with the intent to just listen and learn about their perspective. Now that's tricky for me and maybe some other people as well because oftentimes people have different perspectives than mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those we're, we're passionate about our perspectives. They may have a different viewpoint or a different perspective. So it's a challenge for me personally, and I'm getting better at it to just sit back and not be ready to jump in with an interjection about how I see things and just continue to, as I say, provoke learning. Tell me more about that. Help me understand how you see it that way. How have you come to that conclusion? That's interesting. Now I may say something like, wow, I, I see it differently. Help me understand more about how you see it. Mm -hmm. So I go in with that intent, I guess you could say, to just really, really learn and not interrupt. So that's the one thing I do, first of all. The second thing is I allow for silence. Now, a lot of, it sounds weird to say perhaps, but a lot of us U.S. Americans, uh, those of us raised in this culture, we're very uncomfortable with long periods of silence. Yes. Yeah, more than five seconds in a conversation. For example, if I were to ask you a question, Laura, and maybe you're thinking about the question and then how to respond to it and you're formulating, well, five, ten seconds later, I'm already getting nervous and then I jump in with another question or uh, trying to clarify the question that I just asked. I have learned to get comfortable with that silence because the silence is a tool that'll take the conversation to a deeper level because it'll allow you, in the example that I just gave, hey, when, you know, if I ask you a question, Laura, and you're taking some seconds to ponder it and you're not coming up with the response right away, Rather than me jumping in, if I allow for the silence, 
you may come up with something really awesome that I may have squelched had I jumped in. You may come in with an aha moment to solve your own problem that maybe I was coaching you on had I, you know, had I not just jumped in uh, because I was uncomfortable with the silence. So I go in with curiosity mode with the intent to learn. I ask a lot of questions. I try, I really do my best to not interject and jump in with my opinions or my perspective. Eventually they will ask me. Usually that's how the conversation will go. How do you see it, Luis? What are your thoughts on this? And then I'll share how I see it. But first, I want to hear all about them. And I think you may agree with this. I don't have science or research or data to back it up, but people generally love to talk about how they see things and how they feel about things and what their perspective is. And they'll elaborate on that. I go with that. Throw in a little periods of silence as they think about how to respond, not interjecting. That's how I go into my, that's my approach to good listening. I hope that answered the question. So I was putting in some silence there for you. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. You did, you did well. <laughs> I don't know. I, how... I, did, I did wonder if I was on mute or not. I thought, oh. <laughs> just, it was just too, too much of a temptation for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What do you say to someone who feels like they are being overlooked at work, that people don't listen to them when they speak up? You know, there is a, what, what, what would you, without knowing many details, there are many people who feel like more outspoken people who are perhaps less competent in the technical side, but more talk, talkative, what, what would you say to help someone in that situation? Well, I feel like I want to do it in two directions. Number one, speaking to the person who feels that they're not being heard, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Then I want to talk to the leaders of okay. those people. Okay. So let's talk to the people who feel that they aren't being heard. You've got to be intentional about what you want to say and who you want to say it to. So if you are an introvert or you tend to be introverted or you're what we call an internal processor, which is different from an introvert, internal processor, they think internally. You got external processors like me that just think out loud and blurt out loud as we're thinking. So when for the internal processors who perhaps may also be introverts, you've got to seek out the person and ask for that conversation and schedule that conversation to happen because you may get drowned out in a meeting. Uh, you may not be heard. You may be overwhelmed by those who are more likely to speak up and be heard. And being an introvert or being an internal processor, you may be more than likely to kind of just step back into the shadows and allow the show to carry on. So you've got to be proactive and know who, be intentional about what it is you, you want to communicate or say and to whom and to make that happen by setting an appointment or reaching out to them and saying, I really want to speak with you. This is important. It's about whatever and setting, setting the time to do it. That's one side. But I think more effective not more effective, but just as effective. And the approach I like to take is leaders, please remember you have introverts and internal processors on your team. Do not always call on your star players in the meetings. Be aware of those who are less likely to speak up, who rarely perhaps speak up, but may have a valuable perspective that you need to hear and allow for your meetings to be handled and to be run in such a way, whether they're in-person meetings in the in the brick and mortar building or their virtual meetings like you and I are having now. 
make sure that you allow time and invite the perspectives of those who may not be likely or who are less likely to speak up than us extroverts and external processors. So those it. are the two sides of the coin, how, how I take it. All right, everybody. So make the, let, let, you want to hear from everybody. You want everybody to feel heard, understood, and valued. Of course. I mean, no, it works. It serves for me, as I mentioned already earlier, as a leader, I want to hear those different perspectives. There might be a gold nugget that I missed out on, right? The cure to cancer, who knows? Exactly, right? exactly. So it, it works in my favor. It works in the favor of the team members because everyone feels valued. Everyone feels that their perspective is at least heard and honored. So it's a win-win to me. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Zoom, since you brought that up, tell me what are your what are your tips for communicating more effectively on Zoom? What do you think the challenges are for Zoom meetings? Because it seems like we're not going to face to face until 2022. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was hoping later 2021, but we'll see. All right. Yeah, uh, maybe. I'm <laughs> dying to get back in the classroom. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Tell you the truth. Um, so we could spend an hour on this, but I will, I will really uh, cut it down. A couple things with virtual. First of all, let me just set the context and let you and your listeners know that I pivoted in about a week. On March 13th, 2020, I received an email that said, do not go to San Francisco on Monday. And my travel for work stopped. It came to a screeching halt and we pivoted to all online. So within a week, I went from in-person 99% to 100% online, mostly Zoom. So in the last eight or nine months, I've learned a few trips, tri tricks. <laughs> I was gonna say tips and tricks, it didn't come out right. Uh, some trips perhaps too. First thing, um, I, because I, maybe you can see it now, I have a lot of energy and I'm very passionate. So I try to make my, my webinars, as I'll call them, my online workshops, as robust, and as um, participatory as possible. I do not lecture. Mm -hmm. So I try to have breakout rooms. And let me back up and say, you want participation. I just mentioned, I want participation. I want it to be a robust conversation, just as if we were in the classroom in person. Now, people have different ways that they like to participate or different ways that they can participate. So I used to be a real stickler and say, everybody, camera's on. Turn your cameras on. And I would get upset when people wouldn't turn their cameras on or they'd turn them on for a few minutes and then turn them off. I'm like, you know what? If we were in the classroom, you wouldn't be able to just go sit outside in the hallway and just hear what I have to say. You would have to be present. You would go in the bathroom. You would fix your hair. You would present. You would be presentable. So why can't we do that online? One of my colleagues coached me and said, Luis, let's keep in mind, this is tricky for everybody. Not everybody is set up in their house with a nice little office set up like you are. Some people have husbands asleep in their underwear on the sofa. Some people have their kids jumping up and down, cats running across, they're trying to make lunch at the same time. There's so much going on, so you gotta honor that. So I pulled back, <laughs> that was a big aha moment for me and, I, and I'm very grateful for that. Funny the things we don't think of that are not in our awareness. Yeah, well this is right? all new. Yeah, this is all new, but then now I realize, oh yeah. my God, yes, everybody's yeah. having some challenges with this. So what I do now, Laura, is basically this. I, I, I want to engage, so I tell everybody that from the get-go. Before we even start the session, I'm like, this is going to be engaging. My hope and my expectation is that we participate. We're going to do that in a couple of different ways. We'll use the chat box. I'll ask you to type in your answers to the chat box. There are going to be some breakouts where you'll be with groups in cohorts with your colleagues to discuss things, come back and debrief it. 
And guess what? I may just ask you to raise your virtual hand. I'll call on you, unmute your microphone, and just talk with us. So I try to get from all angles participation, those who like to talk, those who can't talk, those etc. And we get that participation that way. That's first thing. Second thing is, I don't like to go more and rule of thumb, and I think there's research that backs this up, no more than 90 minutes, two hours max. Yep. And even two hours is pushing it. And we do that with Fierce, the company I work for. Mm -hmm. Our workshops are two hours. Two hours max. More than that, number one, it's information overload. Your participants will not even retain the information. It's a waste of everyone's time and energy. So small bites, uh, incremental learning, you know, what we used to do in an eight-hour day session with an hour lunch and two 20-minute breaks, we now condensed into two hours. Yeah, it's crazy. So it's, it's important <laughs> to keep the engagement, find out how people are able to engage and hit all those ways of engagement. Keep it short, 90 minutes to two hours. Those are just some uh, uh, initial tips we can certainly talk more about that, but those are the two right. that come to my mind. Yeah, well, I was thinking more about the meetings rather than the webinars, the teaching, but it's a really good point that you brought up about the, the camera, because I hear a lot of complaints about that too, that they, it, especially when you're having like a technical conversation that's so it's kind of dry material anyway, and then on top of that, that there's no visual, so, you know, the people having the meeting in that situation, I think, have yeah. to make the call. But you definitely bring up a great point, you know, that some people do have their kids, their mother-in-law who doesn't speak English at home, who's a bit senile, you know. <laughs> been there, done that, I mean. No, that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... It, it, it's just, but it's another layer of complexities. Why I think, I don't know, tell me what, if you agree or not, you, you can disagree, of course, with me, but I think that now with the way business has changed, the market has changed, the, all the anxiety and, and concern that people have about things going on outside of our control, that communication is even more important. It's more important that we be able to be, you know, to listen and to speak uh, to get our point across in a, in a well-articulated way. It just, to me, that's what I, I, I perceive that since we don't have those casual running into people, we're not meeting people for coffee. Like we have to make our conversations count. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent and there's science to back it up. 2002, oh. a Nobel prize was awarded to Daniel Kahneman, whose studies proved we human beings are emotional driven, emotionally driven at the core we are hardwired emotionally first, rationally second. Mm -hmm. It's followed up by another Nobel Prize winner, Richard Thaler in 2013. I won't go into his research, but basically backing that up and adding more to it. At the core, we human beings are emotionally hardwired. We make decisions for emotional reasons. We're loyal to people, to managers, to bosses, to organizations, to brands for emotional reasons. We are emotionally driven, emotionally hardwired creatures. We crave the connection. And now being separated, physically separated, socially distanced, uh, so many companies now out of the office, working remotely like this, we crave it and we need it even more. Now I'm saying that anecdotally, I don't have the, the data to back that particular thing up, statement up, but I stand by it. You're a human being, we crave that connection. And so I just had a conversation today with another 
uh, colleague and I was saying, you know, it is so important for leaders to right now in our in the period that we're going through these challenges that we're going through, it is so important to check in with your people, your team members, no agenda. Yes, we need to have those agenda-based meetings where they're, you know, action items and who's on first and when's our next meeting to follow up, all that. Yes, we need that. But you need to invest the time. And why I say you need to invest the time because I often get pushed back. There's no time. We're all so busy. Right. Well, you know what? It's an investment. 10 minutes of your time to check in with the people on your team. And I'm talking with leaders. No agenda. Just how are you? What's going on in your world? What's keeping you up at night? How can I support you? And those conversations will be unique to those individuals. They're not going to all sound the same way, but the point is you connect. And the other thing is, as I think I already mentioned, is there's science behind it. There's also science behind why turn on your camera. You can see my smile and there's something in your brain and chemicals are released when you see a genuine smile on my face. If my camera's off, you miss out on that. That's a piece of communication that we're not even aware of in our brains that's happening. So that's why I say it's so important, even if you can do it for just a minute, turn on the cameras. Let's make the human connection. Let's, let's remember that that's important. We're hardwired that way. So yes, I agree with you, Laura, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like that uh, suggestion of having people turn on the camera for a few minutes, even if not the whole yeah, you can turn it off. duration. Yeah. It, you yeah, know, if the kids come in and... Yeah, I, I think that's really good. Well, this has been so interesting, and, and um, I just think you, you have such great energy and expertise. But tell us a story from your international uh, experience before we go, because I love hearing these stories about, you know, the cultural assumptions, or you thought you spoke another language, or the other person thought they were communicating with you. So I know you must have a lot. So tell us a good story. Sure. I, I got a couple of good ones um, and I'll, I'll make them short so we don't belabor the point. Uh, the first one was when I first moved to India and I got my apartment, my flat, Microsoft provided it and everything. But once they get you in there and you're settled in there, you're kind of on your own. You got to deal with your landlord. My air conditioner wasn't working and it was hot. So in my America, with my American mindset, I go down to the office of the property management or whatever they were in India. And I go right to the guy at the desk and in very bullet pointed fashion, I tell him I'm in this unit. My AC is not working. It's hot. Can you please have the AC fixed? And he said something like, yes, yes, we'll do our level best to have it fixed soon or something to that effect. Well, with my American mindset, I took that as a yes. <laughs> okay, well, another day goes by. I'm sweating at night. AC is not fixed. I go back down again and I'm like, excuse me, AC is not fixed. I can't live like this. It's pretty dang hot. Can you please fix the AC? He gave me some, uh, some kind of a vague contextual answer, which I took as a yes. Something clued into me that next day, the third, time, the third day when the AC still was not on yet. And this is so funny because I learned, you know, we learned this stuff academically. I learned this at grad school, but now when it comes to the practice part, sometimes we forget the theoretical part. So I had learned this and now it comes into practice. This culture, generally speaking, is relationship based. So I went down there the third day, same guy, forget what his name is. Good morning, sir. How are you? Fine. How are you? 
And in Indian style, South Indian style, have you had your breakfast? Yes, I've had my breakfast. Have you had your breakfast? Yes, I had my breakfast. I had some good chai. I made some really good chai. Oh, you've had your chai? Yes. Please sit down. Have some more chai. Thank you. Pours me some chai, gives me some biscuits, and we start chatting. We don't even mention the AC until 15 minutes later. Four biscuits and two cups of tea later, 20 minutes later, then he says, AC is not fixed? No, sir, it's not been fixed yet, and it's pretty hot. Let me get Rajiv for that right now. Hey, and he tells the guy to go fix my AC. That day it was done. What was the difference? Style of communication, relationship-based. That was yep. one, that's, that, that's one example. Uh, another example is how I train my managers. So when I'm consulting with US American managers who are leading perhaps IT teams in India, this is where curiosity comes in. Don't be satisfied with the first answer. So can we, the, the American manager may ask, will you have this done by Friday close of business? And you get an answer like, we'll do our level best, sir. That's <laughs> uh, a no. But an American will hear yes. And then Friday will come and they will not get it. And then they'll be in a tizzy as to why it didn't happen and what's going on. And only to find out, well, so-and-so had a wedding to go to and he'll be gone for 10 days because in India, weddings are big family affairs that last maybe a week or two. But how come he didn't know that? Because he didn't ask the questions. Had that manager, when he asked the question, will you have that by Friday at the end of the day? And they got that answer. They could have followed up with more questions. Uh, what's preventing you? Is there anything that's preventing that from happening? What's the plan B if you don't get me that? Is there anything you foresee coming that may prevent you from getting that to me on Friday? And then you may hear, well, sir, so-and-so is going to a wedding. That may cause, ah, tell me more about that. How many days is he going to be gone? Who's going to replace while he's gone? Oh, no one's going to replace while he's gone? Oh, now there's more information that I was not aware of. So, that's another thing I learned, and this is, goes back to our original discussion today about being curious in these conversations, especially cross-culturally, because we assume, again, we assume we know what's being communicated be, uh, to us, and we're not reading between the lines, especially in contextual cultures like in India, where they'll tell a long story to get to the point. So those are two, those are two fun examples. Oh, thank you. I just love hearing those stories. I, they make <laughs> me smile, and I, and I just think of how we... We think we know, and then, you know, we didn't know. So, great learning. Yeah, great, great learning. So to wrap this up, uh, Louise, why don't you tell us a couple of things. First of all, if you have any, you know, final pearls of wisdom to drop to our audience, and then if uh, people want to reach out to you for a training or coaching, you know, how, they, how to best get in touch with you and what maybe what your special uh, sweet spot is as far as, uh, communication help and yep. um, that would be that would be great so yep. what what's your what is something that you wish you had known or what's what, tell us give us something that's a yeah. high leverage communication tip you know we were talking about it earlier I actually had planned to speak to something else but because we spoke about it just a few minutes ago it's really landing for me and I want to reiterate this point and that is the next the net, given our current reality with COVID and working from home, and we don't know, even when, we, when COVID is, I don't want to say cured, but we get, a, we, we get a vaccine or whatever, when things kind of go back to quote unquote normal, it won't be the normal we knew. Correct. Things are gonna still going to be different. Things have still changed. So the next frontier 
for the way I look at it, for growth, for individual growth, us as individuals in our careers and growth for organizations, the only real competitive edge lies in what we were talking about a minute ago, and that is human connectivity. Human connectivity. If you want to be a great leader, you've got to be able to connect with your employees at a deep level. You've got to be able to have those non-agenda-based discussions and check-ins and show genuine empathy and concern. You've got to be able to or lower your aim. So lower your aim. It's a huge, in my, in my experience, huge difference between having the title leader, and I've known quite a few people with the title leader, having the title leader and being the kind of person who people commit to at a deep level. If you want to be that kind of a leader to people who, the kind to whom people commit to at a deep level and trust, you got to be able to get, engage people's hearts as well as their minds. Because as I said earlier, two researchers won Nobel Prizes for it. We human beings are emotionally driven, emotionally hardwired creatures. And so we cannot forget that aspect of it. I call it smart plus heart. We got the smart for sure. Don't forget the heart. We're human beings. Love that. Smart plus heart. All right. So how can people find you? Well, first of all, I'd like to direct people to our website. I work for Fierce Conversations. So if you are a leader and you want to transform the communication in your team, your organization to make it more effective and improve your results, go to our website, Fierce Inc. F-I-E-R-C-E-I-N-C.com slash resources. You will find tons of free resources to kind of continue the conversation on what we've been talking about today, including nine fun ways to stay connected while working remotely. There's a lot more than that. Also, I'd love to expand my network with any of the listeners today on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn, so please join the network. I'd be honored to join your network. You can find me on linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash my name, Luis Gonzalez. Thank you. This has been so interesting, uplifting, timely, and uh, I don't know what else. It's been a lovely conversation. I've enjoyed it too. A transformative conversation. I I definitely picked up some helpful tips uh, that I'm going to share. I'm going with with in my work, and I really appreciate your taking the time to uh, and, and the generosity to share so so much wisdom and uh, practical tips with us today thank you so audience uh this has been great uh you know i always bring you interesting people that we talk about things that very few people are talking about on podcasts so um until the next time i'm signing off thanks for tuning in bye-bye 